on. Step one of preaching a sermon. Turn your mic on. All right, Gold Avenue Church. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew with a particular eye to how Jesus, as he ushers in the kingdom of God, is restoring the whole creation. In the last several weeks, we've been camped out in what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is the teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples and the large crowds that had followed him. Now, if you've been following closely along in the text, you'll notice that we skipped a few verses at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, and we jumped straight to the Lord's Prayer and then the passage on fasting. That was because of the snow day we had several weeks ago, and today we're going to go back and catch those missed verses because I was not going to be denied my first opportunity to to preach. So today our text picks up, we're still in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is describing the DNA of the kingdom of God. He begins the sermon with these wonderful counterintuitive blessings. You'll remember this, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. Then he goes on to pronounce this profound identity over the crowd. And several weeks ago, or what feels like maybe a month or so ago now, Derek did a wonderful job unpacking Jesus' salt and light metaphors. Remember, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the most valuable treasure in the kingdom of God. You are the light of the world. You are God's chosen means of restoring the whole earth. And then from there, Jesus moves into clarifying some teachings from the law that had been misrepresented by the religious authorities of the day. This is the series of, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, right? And we learned that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets to embody the spirit of the law, which is love, and to say to us, you too, you're going to embody this love to the rest of the world. So this morning we're picking up in the middle of this sermon, beginning at Matthew chapter 6. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. How often do we turn on the news or open our social media of choice and see something like this? A well-known public figure was seen serving lunch at her local homeless shelter. She smiled at guests as they filed through the serving line. She meandered through the tables, shaking hands, making small talk, taking photos. Conveniently, she had a camera crew with her that her publicist had arranged In fact, the publicist had arranged the whole thing, which makes us wonder if her visit came from a genuine concern for the needy or for a concern of building up her own image. Now, we can't know her motives for sure, but something about the idea of someone using others to build themselves up doesn't sit well with us, does it? And in this morning's text, Jesus is warning his followers that if we are to embody love to the world, we need to check our motives. Are we using others to build ourselves up, or are we moving toward them out of genuine concern that comes from the very heart of God? 
Jesus begins with a warning. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, this warning is actually an introductory sentence to the next section of Jesus' teaching on generosity, prayer, and fasting. The, the Greek word, which is translated here as acts of righteousness, could also be translated as piety, or as one New Testament scholar puts it, your covenant behavior. Now, this phrase calls to mind the covenant relationship that the Hebrew people had with Yahweh, right? Because of this covenant relationship, there were certain behaviors that were expected of them, behaviors that would express their faith in and their obedience to God and would mark them out as God's people. There were three specific covenant behaviors that Jesus' original audience would have immediately thought of when they heard this phrase, do your acts of righteousness or do your covenant behavior. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And interestingly, these practices, they're markers of both ancient and modern Judaism. And even more interestingly, nowhere in this next section of Jesus' teaching, as you guys heard the last two weeks from Pastor Scott and Pastor Jalisa, nowhere will we hear Jesus lighten up on the expectation that those behaviors would mark the kingdom of God. He assumes that generosity, prayer, and fasting will continue to mark out his followers as God's people. So this warning that Jesus gives to his disciples to be aware of their motivations for practicing these behaviors, they extend to all three, giving, praying, and fasting. Why would Jesus warn his disciples about their motivations for practicing these covenant behaviors, particularly in today's text, generosity? Why does he invite them to ask themselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, he's just been teaching them about how they are going to embody the character of God. God is a generous God who knows our needs. He sees them. He longs to meet them. And if we are the salt and the light of the earth, we are the ones through whom God wants to meet those needs. But if our end goal is to build ourselves up, we're going to fail to really see, honor, and love the people who are in front of us, and we will not accurately reflect the heart of God, his uncalculated generosity. So Jesus paints this picture of two extremes to illustrate his point. On the one hand, we have the trumpet-blowing hypocrite. Hypocrite comes from the Greek word, um, which means to pretend or to play act. So it makes us think of the ancient play actors who would wear masks on stage. So they were pretending to be one thing, but underneath that mask, they were some, someone or something entirely different, right? They were, um, yeah, they're pretending to be one thing. So Jesus says, don't be like the trumpet-blowing hypocrite. He's playing the part of looking generous, but underneath, he's only concerned with building his own self-image. Now, there's no evidence, no historical evidence that trumpet blowing was a regular practice in giving. Um, Jesus here is exaggerating to make a kind of a humorous point. It's like he's saying, okay, you all know the kinds of people that I'm talking about, the ones who use the misfortune of others as a stage on which to draw attention to themselves. Their goal is to be praised by other people, and they're... um, and they've received their reward in full. They're kind of like that public figure who served a meal at, a, at the shelter, using others as a way to build themselves up. The other extreme is the giver whose left hand doesn't know what his right hand is doing. 
Jesus is not speaking literally here, right? Our, it's impossible for our left and our right hands to operate independently of each other or to operate without our knowledge, right? He's setting up this contrast of extremes to say that his followers ought to give in such a way that their own self-gain is of their least concern. The trumpet-blowing hypocrite doesn't actually care for the needy person in front of him. In contrast, the followers of Jesus are so filled with the love of God that they're moved toward genuine concern for their neighbor. They see their neighbors, they see their neighbor's needs, and they reflect the generosity of God. It kind of makes me think of how as parents, you like instinctively move to catch your child if they're falling, sometimes with an arm, sometimes with a leg, whatever you can use to reach them, or you reach out and kind of like brush their hair out of their face without even thinking. It's this overflow of the love that we have for our kids that moves us to care for them without even thinking, and I think that's something of what Jesus has in mind here. The goal is simply expressing the love of God to others, seeing their needs with the same compassion of the Father and meeting those needs as an embodiment of the generosity of the Father. Even if their generosity goes completely unnoticed by others, Jesus says they will still receive their reward. Now, we appear really different from the crowd around Jesus in many ways. We don't look like them. We don't dress like them. We don't speak their languages and maybe, unfortunately, we don't eat the same kinds of foods that they did. But, but in the ways that really matter, we're not unlike them at all. We, too, are in covenant relationship with God, and therefore we ought to be marked by these same covenant behaviors that Jesus is talking about. We, too, are called to embody the kingdom of God and reflect the Father's generosity to our neighbors. So just as Jesus' disciples may have found themselves somewhere on the spectrum between trumpet sounding and in the secret giving, needing to ask themselves, why am I doing this? We too need to ask ourselves that question. And we can think of generosity um, in, in three ways. We can think of giving our time, giving our talent, our skills or our abilities, or giving our treasure, our material resources. And when we give of our, we can give of our time, our talent, and our treasure in ways that sound the trumpet, that draw attention to ourselves, or out of a desire to love and to worship God by expressing his love to our neighbors. So here are some examples of what that could look like. We could spend our time over lunch with a coworker under the guise of building relationship, building friendship, but really we're building our own self-image in hopes that this coworker could help us climb the ladder at work. Or we could spend time, as Dane did for years, didn't tell you I was going to call you out, Dane. Um, list, we've heard Dane over the years talk about how he spent time with his coworkers, listening to them, asking questions about their lives, expressing genuine care for them. <clears throat> now, those small acts of generosity with his time were his expression of worship and love for his neighbors. And ultimately, we saw how it opened the door for him to share the gospel with many of his coworkers. We could give our talent. Perhaps we have a talent for administrative work, and we give that toward organizing our neighborhood's annual cleanup day. We like the recognition that we get as being a model citizen, and that moment at the after party when the crowd applauds us for the wonderful ways in which we pulled off such a successful event. Or we could give our talents like my grandfather, who spent many of his post-retirement years 
as a project supervisor for Habitat for Humanity. He built homes for his neighbors, not because the local paper might show up and cover it, but as his expression of worship and an expression of God's love for those in need. We could give financially of our treasures to a building campaign so that our name goes on a nice plaque in the building, or even better yet, so that we get the namesake of the building. And there's nothing wrong with having your name on a building. But if our, if our motivation is to have our name on the building so that people remember us with pride and appreciation, that's giving in order to be seen by others and to be built up ourselves. Or we could give, as many of you did, to the purchase of this building. We didn't publish a list of who gave what, and we are not bidding for naming rights on these seats. Okay? <laughs> Many of you prayed and you gave what the Lord led you to give as a beautiful expression of worship and as a way of expressing God's love to our neighbors. Like, Just think of the ways that God might use this physical space to bless the West Side neighborhood. Jesus expects that generosity will mark us, his followers, and he invites us when we give our time, our talent, or treasure to model the Father who himself is marked by generosity, right? It's our generous Father who gave himself for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were still separated from God in rebellion to him, Jesus came and he died for us to reconcile us to the Father, He saw our need. He came near to us out of deep compassion. He sent his son, Jesus, who, though he was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Did you hear that? He didn't make a show of his being God, of his coming to rescue the whole world, to build himself up. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's true generosity, the ultimate generosity. Friends, our Father is the source of all generosity. If this is the kind of generosity born out of love that Jesus embodied for our sake, how can we not move toward others with that same generous love? Now, did you catch the promise nestled in the text? Listen again. Your father, who sees your in-the-secret generosity, will reward you. When we give our time, our talent, or treasure for the sake of loving our neighbor, because we are so full with the generous love of the father, our father sees us, and he's delighted. There's a story later in Matthew's gospel of a woman who comes and she anoints Jesus' head with a jar of very expensive perfume. She didn't give that perfume um, so that people would admire the lavish way in which she contributed to Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus' disciples are indignant that she would waste it in such a way. But Jesus says this, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached around the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I imagine that something similar happens when we give generously like that woman. No one else may notice, or they may even ridicule us, but Jesus sees us. And he says to the Father, look, did you see that? 
Did you see what he did? Did you see what she did? They did a beautiful thing to me. He brings us before the Father. He honors our beautiful reflection of the Father's heart, and the Father rewards us. We receive his delight, his pleasure, his very presence. As we grow as disciples of Jesus and we're welcoming the Spirit's work in our inner beings, we will find that increasingly our behavior reflects our generous Father. We'll find that moving toward others out of generosity will be more and more ordinary for us. Just like the parent who instinctively reaches for their kid, their falling child. And we'll find that our concern for how we're perceived by others, whether they notice and applaud us or not, becomes less and less of a concern. We are signposts to the world that say, this is who God is. This is what he's like. He sees you. He sees your needs. He longs to meet your needs. He doesn't use you to build himself up. Actually, he comes to you out of love to build you up and to reconcile you to himself. Now, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his followers the light of the world, and he says to them, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When our good works, like generosity, are motivated by a love for God and a love for our neighbor, the Father's glory is all over it. And the world will notice. They may not notice us, but that's not the point, is it? They'll notice the generous love of the Father, and they'll be drawn toward it. There's an author named Rosario Butterfield, um, who is a former professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She was a self-proclaimed atheist and openly antagonistic toward Christianity. In the late 90s, she developed a really unlikely friendship with a pastor and his wife after they invited her to share dinner with them at their house. And those dinners continued over the next two years, and Rosaria estimates 500 dinners later. It's a lot of dinners. She experienced a very different version of the Jesus that she had previously known. This pastor and his wife, they weren't using Rosaria to build themselves up. They weren't parading her as their token atheist friend. They gave generously of their time, their talent, and their treasure to invite Rosaria into their lives. And through them, Rosaria saw the love-motivated generosity of God, and she was drawn toward it. She came to faith in Jesus, and she now writes and speaks extensively on hospitality and the gospel. Friends, we are called to embody this love-motivated generosity of the Father to our neighbors, even if no one notices us or Gold Avenue Church. They'll notice the Father. They'll see the glory of God. So this morning, I wonder a few things. I wonder, how might God want to purify and heal our motives? In what ways... Might we be in need of his freedom from bondage to other people's opinions of us? How might Jesus be calling us to practice love-motivated generosity toward our neighbors? And it's interesting, I, didn't, I knew that you guys were going to do a little bit on fasting, but I didn't, know, I didn't know the meat of it. So we've heard several times this morning about asking the Lord to 
help us connect with our neighbors, draw us to our neighbors, but also words about needing to be filled with his, with his love. So I also wonder this morning if some of us need a fresh encounter with the generous heart of the Father. We can't embody what we don't know, and we can't practice true generosity out of a place of spiritual scarcity. So, friends, I think the Father's invitation to us this morning is be filled. He says that Scripture says he will fill us with all the fullness of God. Where are we missing? Where have we missed the generous heart of the Father? Where might we be um, doubting his goodness toward us or might need a fresh experience his love-motivated generosity toward us so that we could be filled to be able to express and embody his generosity to our neighbors? So let's pray. Father, you are so good. And it's a little staggering that you've called us to embody your heart to the world around us because we are so incapable of doing that accurately at so many times. But Lord, you have given us your spirit. You give your spirit without measure. And you've said that you will fill us with all all of your fullness. So God, this morning, I pray that you would come and move among us Would you heal our heart motivations? Would you refill us with your love so that we're overflowing, so that your generosity would flow out of us without us even having to think about it, that we would move toward our neighbors, that you would open our eyes to see the people around us, to see their needs with the same compassion with which you see us. Fill us up, Lord. Fill us up and... Empower us to move toward people, to accurately embody your heart for them. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.